Hi, this is Phil Guest, and welcome to Behind Startup Lines. I've got a bit of a treat for you this week. Not your normal tech founder talking about building software products, but a founder who's built a very successful business in the field of toys and outdoor sports equipment. It's been my pleasure to reconnect with David Strang, CEO, founder of Wicked, to talk to him about his story over the past 20 years of building one of the most powerful established brands within the outdoor sports and children's toy sector. David's got so many stories to tell us about how he won his first customers, the errors he made, but a lot of what David talks about in this episode will ring so true with us as we're building our businesses. I think you're going to find it really interesting. So I'll leave you to enjoy the program. I'll be back here at the end. So I'm delighted to have David Strang with me today, CEO, founder of Wicked Vision. David, great to see you. Thank you for joining me. Great to see you too, Phil. Good to be here. While I've been talking largely to technology company builders, yours is a very different business, but one that I feel from the conversations we've had recently, there's a lot of really valuable lessons for I guess any founder, regardless of the type of business you're building. And I'd like to explore that with you today. But before we get into that, could you tell us a bit about Wicked Vision and where you started? The story I'm about to tell, you know, any of these things, you've got to be adaptable in business, right? So this isn't a story about how some guy got boomerangs into a toy shop. It's a bit deeper than that. So I was importing boomerangs. It was more sports thing. And I was getting some blocks going into toy stores, right? So they were like, oh, these are really for older kids. They should sit in sports stores. And then some sports departments that were in Harrods are like, ah, oh, these are really not for us. They're more of a toy. And I'm like, okay, so I'm stuck here. What am I supposed to do? So I suddenly thought, if I can do a boomerang that you can throw inside that was soft and safe for kids, that's got to be gold, right? Something that you can demonstrate in these stores. And I thought, if we can demonstrate in places like Harris toy department Hamley's of course one of the most famous toy stores in the world we can demonstrate in tourist attractions science museum Madame Tussauds that kind of place where there are loads of kids loads of tourists loads of footfall that would be ideal so I did I, I had a look at, in Hamley's and I wasn't the first one to think of it that's another important lesson you don't have to be the first person in a market you just have to be the best or better than them right so walked into Hamley's and saw that somebody's throwing around boomerangs I'm like Hang on a second. This was, this, this was my idea. But what I saw was I saw a £3.99 boomerang, right, available in a few colors, somebody throwing it, and they're selling a lot of boomerangs. And my idea wasn't that. My idea was to have a range of boomerangs. So if you've got a demonstrator in there throwing a boomerang at £3.99, you're able to upsell to a £5.99, a £7.99, a £9.99 boomerang, not just be a one-trick pony. So I approached the Hamley's buyer. And I said, look, we are a boomerang manufacturer. I think I probably said we're the biggest boomerang manufacturer in the world, which we weren't at the time, but there you go. And I said, I've got a proposal for you. I want to do an indoor boomerang and demonstrate in the store. They said, well, we've already got one. We're not interested. I said, okay. I said, but my idea is we'll demonstrate an indoor one, but we'll also have a longer range indoor one, a shorter range indoor one. We'll have an outdoor one. We'll have one that's got lights on it, whatever. We'll have a range to sell. And I did a little spreadsheet for them and said, look, this is what I think you're currently selling, but this is what I think that we can do with you, right? We sell X amount per day and we upsell to these ones. Revenue-wise, you're going to be a lot better off. 
So they said, yeah, okay, we're very interested. These numbers look fantastic. The only problem is, I can't remember the number, but I think they had something like 3,000 or 5,000 of these other boomerangs in stock. They said, look, we can't allow you to come in until these are sold. I said, I'll tell you what I'll do. You get rid of that other company or that other demonstrator. I said, I will provide staff to sell that all the way through. Only, of course, after it's sold through, then I want my range in there. And they said, well, oh yeah, absolutely. I was confident that we could get staff in there to sell that through in a relatively short period of time and we'd win the account. And it worked. It absolutely worked. So I think the lesson there is you have to be open to adapt your product or your product range or your offering or your service or whatever it is. So if you're going in there and you realize that you can do a better job than the competition, or you realize that by adapting your offering, you can get your foot in the door, then do it. Depends how hungry you are and depends how easy it is to do. Coming up with an indoor boomerang that I did was not easy. I mean, that was months, if not probably over a year of development to get that boomerang the way that I wanted it, but absolutely worth it. What I want to know is, did you sell them quicker than perhaps they'd been doing it? Did you put more people in there? I mean, what did that piece of journey like? I guess if you made an impact to their bottom line immediately, they must have gone, thank goodness we met this guy. I physically didn't go and do it. Although that's my background, right? That's, I mean, going way back, market stall style selling. That's where I kind of came from back from when I was 14. When I was at school, I was doing all that. Also, I didn't know what their sales were, right? So I should have asked to know what to sort of pitch it up against. But I didn't ask. I just sort of assumed they were selling X amount and knew what I think that we could sell. So I was a little bit naive. I should have said, what are you selling? And then come back and say, well, we think we can triple or quadruple your sales. So I don't know if... But they um, might not have told you that. Yeah, yeah, yeah you had to assume You had to assume what you knew about the market. Yeah, They probably wouldn't. And I just made some assumptions that did work. Yes, yeah, strategically, you've got to have a solution. You've got to also have the balls to do it because if you're confident that your service you're offering or your product is going to be a better solution for them, then you have to put your money where your mouth is. Of course, they didn't know. They're not going to go out looking for that solution, right? Unless somebody knocks on their door, they weren't looking thinking, hang on, this is working as a, a single boomerang. I wonder if there's anybody out there selling a range of... No, no, they're not looking for that. You know, it's up to you to offer it to them. Did your people in the store sell them quickly? I mean, did you get through the stock faster than they anticipated? Oh, yeah. I think it was only a case of a few weeks. I can't remember exactly, but it would have been something like three or four weeks. And then as you started to scale the business, where did you go from there? Because you didn't just stop at Boomerangs. You've been doing other products as well. So from there, I knew that I was onto something. I knew that I personally had the sales skills to go into any retailer. Maybe it was not from that early win of knocking on the door of Harrods and getting in there straight away. But I thought then, let's, let's do this. You feel sort of kind of superhuman, right? Especially when you're younger as well and you haven't had that many knockbacks. Very soon after that, I'll tell you what happened. I was really looking, right, what other products could I do? I was just importing boomerangs. I started manufacturing a little bit, so that was the indoor boomer, all that kind of stuff. And I thought there's got to be other opportunities. And it is funny how opportunities come from left field, come from the weirdest places. The next one was, this would have been 2001, right? So this is really early in business days, flicking through the pages of the Evening Standard. And I see this article, and it was talking about a pair of shoes with wheels that pop out the soles, right? Like aeroplane style, right? Coming down. They were called street flyers. They were selling in a New York store. Now, I can't remember. It may have been something like JC Penney's or Sears or one of the big New York stores. Pretty sure it was JC Penney's, something like that. And I thought, that, now that looks amazing. And it was just an article saying that this is a big thing in the US. It's doing really, really well. And that was it. 
and it gave the name of the product. I think it gave the name of the company that was selling in there saying that they're doing really well, whatever it was. Don't even know why it was there. I probably cut it out and I got it somewhere. Anyway, I got on the phone to the company who was doing this, literally, again, picking up the phone. There's another lesson. We'll get to that in a minute. Pick up the phone and get speaking to this guy in the US, Jackie Franco. There you go. That came from nowhere. This is 22 years ago. And a real New Yorker, gave him the phone and I said, hey, I wonder if I can speak to somebody who sells these street fly issues. What are these? He says, yeah. I said, I've seen an article. He says, yeah, we're, we're doing this and it's been very successful for us. It's an amazing product. Fantastic. I said, I'd be really interested to bring these into the UK and launch this in the UK for you. And he said, well, he said, you're a little bit late. I've got somebody that's on a plane right now that's meeting with me tomorrow that's coming over from Manchester and they want to pick it up and they're just coming over to sort of sign on the dotted line. I'm like, okay. So I said, well, I don't want them to sign. I want it. What do I need to do? And he said, well, very nice and very ambitious, but no, these guys are the thing. I said, I'll tell you what to do. When they land, I said, tell them who I am and that I can sell this. I could sell hundreds of thousands of pairs of these. I've got deals with Hamleys and Harrods and all these accounts. And I can also get this into all the national newspapers and get it on TV. I can get it everywhere, right? So just giving it all, fake it till you make it chat. So he said, okay, sounds very interesting. Anyway, sure enough, that company did fly across there, did do the deal and were on the phone to me as soon as they got back. And we met up and they said, well, who are you? And I said, well, look, I can do this for you. I can send, sell it into all the retailers. I can front it and I can do all the publicity and all the promotion. Now, speaking of publicity and promotion, I learned that very early with Boomerangs is I thought, how am I going to get these things sold? And I just called up the newspapers or the magazines. I just thought if I can get an article in a newspaper, which I did, and I managed to get a three-quarter page in the Evening Standard. I was in all of the newspapers throwing boomerangs, teaching journalists how to throw boomerangs. But, you know, getting the word out there, I learned very, very early on, was massively important, absolutely massively important. I love the story that you have around your sunglasses range. Talk us through that, because there's some really valuable lessons there about moving into a hyper-competitive sector that's dominated by one major player. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. So many years after Wicked started, so I really grew that into a brand rather than just a range of products. So Wicked has now become a brand of toys, toys, sports, leisure, recreation type products. So we say active sports and skill toys. But I think I've got a real appetite, as many, I hate using the term entrepreneurs, but business owners do of you're always looking for that next big thing or that next idea or looking for inspiration to come up with that next idea. And for some reason, for many years, I was always looking at children's sunglasses and thinking that there was no real children's sunglasses brand that was out there that was ruling the roost. It was just adult sunglass brands or major global brands that maybe had a dip their toe in the water a little bit and did a few of kids' sunglasses. It was either that or it was really cheap and cheerful, five quid or even less sunglasses that you get at a supermarket or hanging on a clip strip in a supermarket with a Spider-Man or a license on them. And poor quality, by the way. So I did a bit more sort of market research. I did two things. I looked at the market out there to see what was available, and I was right. It was really cheap, 399 to 799 you know, cheap, nasty, brittle, bad lenses, breakable, losable, throwaway sort of sunglasses for kids where their parents were spending £120, £150 in a pair of branded sunglasses. So I always think that's odd. Like, don't care about your kids' eyes, but care about your own eyes and fashion. 
but it's always weird double standard for me, very strange. And the other side of the market is, yes, you're right, there is one major player, vertically integrated optical player, brilliant, by the way, who manufactures sunglasses. They own the brands and they own the retail outlets as well. But you, you coming into a very established market, how do you play? Uh, how do you even carve a part of that out for yourself? I think what's interesting is if you look, I also said niche is not a dirty word in business. If you own a niche, that can be a huge business in its own right. And everybody seemed to be, and not just like Zotica, you think it's dominated by them, but I mean, there are hundreds and hundreds of other brands and other eyewear manufacturers. You have to walk around a trade show and it's just it's mind-blowing that hardly any of them are looking at kids or concentrating at kids. It might be a little add-on, but they're not owning that range, right? They're not owning that sector of the market. I think the only other sort of thing I can liken it to is the surfwear market, right? So I don't know, I haven't done huge amounts of research into it, but I know the surfway market, you've got your billabongs, you've got your quicksilvers, hang tens, but then one dominates as far as market share, and it's one that you wouldn't really think of. It is owned by Quicksilver, but Roxy as a brand, I believe is the largest surfwear brand in the world, I believe, right? Somebody was going to probably write in or call into you and say it's rubbish, but I think it is or it was. And that's because Quicksilver noticed that there was no one specializing in female surfwear. Right now, that's really interesting, isn't it? Because the sport was dominated back then by male surfers. It was a male oriented industry. And they thought we're going to own the female sector of that industry. Yes, it is owned by Quicksilver, but let's look at it just as a brand thing. So I learned from that and I thought, okay, so if we can dominate the kids market and there's a huge fight out there for adult sunglasses and even more so now with all the online brands, it's massive. You'll see them popping up now that the sun's out. You'll see them popping up on your Facebook feed or Insta feed, TikTok, but no one was specializing in kids. So I thought, right, let's do it. We also researched on the other side on talk to parents. So we asked parents, A, do you spend money on kids sunglasses? If not, why not? And what's stopping you from spending more money or putting sunglasses on your kids' faces? And what came out was fascinating, fascinating, really simple as well. Some parents are like, oh, I don't know, do kids really need to wear sunglasses? Okay, so there's an education piece there. Yes, it's really important. In fact, kids' eyes are more susceptible to sun damage than the adults' eyes, right? That's number one. Number two, they said, look, I don't want to spend too much money on my kids' sunglasses because they'll either lose them or break them. That was the golden sort of nugget for me. They'll lose them or break them. So I thought, if we can come up with something that's relatively unlosable and relatively unbreakable, which we'll get to in a second, and good quality, then maybe parents will spend a little bit more than the five pounds or six pounds or whatever it is from a supermarket, you know, licensed pair of sunglasses. And again, that's relatively recent. So that was about 2018. A bit of COVID in there stopped our growth a little bit, but we're back on track. And now, you know, Sunnies can be found in all Specsaver stores throughout the country, 960 Specsaver stores we sell online. And now we're about to grow internationally with that through optical and travel markets. So yeah, it's been a huge success. So yeah, finding that gap within the broader market, I think is the lesson there. When you think back to building the commercial side of your business, what would you do differently if you were to start all over again? Oh, I mean, you know, it's such an interesting question about you could wind the clock back. What I try not to do is I try not to go, oh, what if I did it this and what if I did it that way? You could really beat yourself up. And I'm convinced if I knew then what I know now, then I'd have much more success much earlier on, really. Of course, out of hindsight and all that. But I think there's some big things. What I try to do is rather than say, what would I have done differently? If now, if I was going to advise somebody else, what to do, what would I advise them rather than sort of going, oh, I'd rather have my time again sort of thing, right? Same, same question. 
So I think relatively recently, and I'm going to say within the last four or five years, I looked back and I thought, why am I not where I should be in business? And I don't think it was a lack of determination. I don't think it was a lack of enthusiasm. I don't think maybe a lack of knowledge, which we'll get to. If you did two lists, and one list is all the things that you shouldn't do as a business owner, right? All the things you shouldn't do, and then a list of all the things you should do, I'm convinced that I was switching them. I was doing all the things beautifully well of all the things you shouldn't do as a business owner. So to give you an example, you could probably say I was an amazing micromanager, brilliant at micromanaging everybody within the business, right? We talk about all the staff, fantastic. Looking over the shoulder, telling me exactly what to do, not giving them any autonomy, fantastic at that, right? I was always the smartest person in the room. Not that I'm that smart, but hiring people less intelligent than me. I mean, that is a golden rule. Make sure you're hiring people more, more intelligent than yourself. I mean, every single business book will tell you that. Classic things to get the job done right, do it yourself. Yep, I was brilliant at that. I would always do it myself, roll up my sleeves, get it done, thinking that's the way to do it. Terrible way to think. Thinking that I know everything, another one. Thinking that I know it all and that no one's going to teach me anything new. I'm not going to learn anything. Wouldn't even read any business books. Wouldn't, none of that. Wouldn't read any business books, wouldn't listen to any podcasts, all that kind of stuff. I would sweat the small stuff. Brilliant at doing that. So get involved in the detail of the business rather than taking myself. So you can see this pattern, right? This pattern is, and it's not me, it's not false modesty and putting myself down just for the sake of it. It is genuinely, I was excellent at all the things that I shouldn't be doing in building a business. And again, it's a relatively recent realization. And as long as you realize at some point, rather than just going through your whole business career, realizing that you're banging your head up against the wall. So, yeah, all of these things, obviously flip all these things in their head. Don't micromanage. Give people rope. Don't be the smartest person in the room. Hire people a lot smarter than you are. They should be teaching you their specific areas that they're in charge of rather than you teaching them, right? It's stupid at hiring a financial controller if you're teaching them more about finance than they are than you. And likewise with everything else. You will probably have your area that you will specialize in or something that you sort of lean towards. Sales is probably mine. Marketing, I love product and new product development, brand building. I love all that. But still hire people that are better than you at it. And guess what? There are a lot of people that are going to be better than you at it. And if there's not, and if you can't find them, you're just not looking hard enough. And was there a point in your journey today that that suddenly that happened? Is there a point when there was a trigger or was there an event that suddenly made you realize that you had to change your approach? Albeit so late in the day. I really, really late in the day, and I'm going to go, COVID was a big thing for me. It really was. That wasn't many years, three years ago, right? So in the lead up to that, I was a lot of frustration. Business is still growing. The business was still growing. Things were good. It's all fine, but not growing as fast as I wanted. You end up thinking it's just because you haven't hit on the right product idea or these really basic things instead of really looking around you and going, hang on. What team do I have around me, right? You're not a one-man band. You need a team. You need to hire brilliant people to be able to help you realize your vision and share your vision and join you on the journey and all these things that we know are the right things to do. And that's what I hadn't done. Not saying that anybody that was on my team for the, for the last 20 years were terrible. They were all great and they were wonderful people and great for the time that business moves on. You need to keep looking at that and looking at what's going to take you to the next level. Constantly top up. Yeah, that, that knowledge base within the team. Yes. COVID for me was a line in the sand and it was a moment for me to sort of really look at the business and go, 
right, what's going on here? Why am I not bigger, more successful? Again, there was success, don't get me wrong, it was great and I've had a wonderful time. But if I'm going to do this, let's do this. And everyone around here is sick of hearing that. But, you know, if you're going to do it, do it. And then learn, 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 read books. I mean, God, I'm so late to the party in this. Read books, listen to podcasts, listen to other people's stories, learn from other people's mistakes so that you don't have to make the same mistakes. All these gems, all these cliches are all true and they're all cliches for a reason, right? Yeah, good. Well, look, what you said about bringing people into the business, you know, we see this a lot in early stage companies. You know, the people that join you in the early days, someone I heard someone talk about the idea that your first hires are often misfits, the people that don't fit into normal corporate life because they want to work and build and creating. But those people aren't necessarily the ones that stay with you when you become a bigger company and start to behave more in the way that a corporate would behave. So you have these people that cycle through. And I'm a big fan of finding ways to recycle that knowledge because these people have been there from the beginning and I don't know what you think about the idea that if you're launching new ranges or you're opening new markets it's those early employees that can live with the uncertainty of building something new those are the people you put back in the beginning and say okay go figure that out for me because you trust them they know you they know what you're about they know the product they've got all this knowledge and then we lose it just because they don't fit the profile anymore is there any truth in that for you guys I think that's fascinating and i haven't heard it being put so eloquently as that absolutely that is that's so so true and i think it's a different character it's a different type of person and i think as your business grows you do need different personalities in your business sometimes the entrepreneurial thing can only take you so far and then you do need a bit of corporate i'm not saying to change and to be suited and booted and changed into a corporate you still have to have that entrepreneurial flair and that fun and that passion for growth but actually systems and processes and a bit of sort of grown up business knowledge, corporate knowledge has to come in at some point. And I think the fly by the seat of your pants stuff at the beginning is great. And you know what's really interesting? You're right. I think at another point further down the line, after you've got the systems and processes in place and you've got this more of a solid foundation in place, then, yeah, maybe it's time to bring, maybe not the same people, but the same type of people back into the fall. They're the sort of the misfits as you put them. Again, there's so many stories about what an entrepreneur is. You know, an entrepreneur is defined by somebody who jumps out of a plane and builds a parachute on the way down and all these fun sort of stories about what that kind of mentality is like. And that's true, not necessarily an entrepreneur, but that entrepreneurial mindset to come in and so that can-do attitude and disruptive, you know, that's another word that's found around being disrupting a market. You do need that. That is essentially the lifeblood of the business. But there is a point, maybe that's that middle section or that after you've had that first growth to sort of grow into a, I'm going to say a proper business. It sounds boring, doesn't it? Because you kind of want that, you know, we can do anything sort of attitude, but you do need that structure. You need systems and processes that are tried and tested sometimes in the corporate world to come in. And I had a fantastic hire in this business just after COVID or during COVID, if you like somebody with entrepreneurial background but with very very good corporate experience and that's the perfect blend i think that just about sums up the journey that we have in building businesses it's like yeah we want to create we want to do something different and it's not always fun but it's what we chose to do and i guess that's that's the privilege we have it's true it's not always fun and it's certainly not always comfortable we hear a lot of people getting outside their comfort zones right 
and it's a great place to be. That's when you know that you're building a business. If you're comfortable, then you're kind of doing something wrong. You're just coasting. Get uncomfortable, you know. That can mean many different things. That could be, I don't mean diversifying in your business and getting out of, you know, going from selling toys to selling tomatoes or whatever. I'm not necessarily talking about that or moving the industries. I'm talking about getting uncomfortable within yourself, right? Again, that long list of stuff that I was very good at, the things that I shouldn't have been good at that I was, that was the wrong list getting uncomfortable by changing kind of who you are in a way is really important. And that can change during your business life and during your company's life, for sure. Well, look, we'd love to finish these conversations, David, with a couple of quick fire questions. So I'm going to keep following this military theme. As I said, this was really what drove the idea of behind startup lines that we're constantly battling against the elements to build business. So a couple of quick fire questions for you. No time to prepare these and just tell me kind of what comes to head before we wrap up. So my first question is, give me an idea about how you can defend your business by building a moat to fight off the hordes of competitors that are heading into your space. Do you know, I think reputation is a big one. And I think if you build a reputation behind your brand and behind the people that are within the business. So, for example, if you're going into pitch and I go in the pitch to a major retailer, and I'm talking through my brand, I'm talking to my product, they are not going to sit there and go, that's great, David, we're going to buy a million units off you. They're not going to do that. They're going to say, well, we've got this covered. We've got this other one. We've got something in the space. Hey, we're covered. We don't need your product or your brand because there are many competitors. But if we can go a little bit deeper and solve a problem that they have, so if we can say, maybe some of my competitors aren't servicing that account very well. Maybe they don't like the guy that's at the other side of the desk. Maybe they're not comfortable dealing with them. Maybe they've not got other new product development coming through. Maybe they don't see a future. Maybe there's an issue with that account. So I think the biggest moat is building confidence that your customers have and reputation, a good reputation, a great reputation with your business and the people surrounding your business. Best one, I think, I'd say. Brilliant. Great answer. Thank you for that. Last question then. There is this approach to building business that's been developed by the founder or one of the earlier co-founders of LinkedIn called Blitzscaling. And I want to ask you of when you've used maybe a Blitzkrieg style initiative to launch a product, enter a market. Is it something you've ever done? And if so, give us an example. When you say that, do you mean like a, we call it a spray and pray? Would that be the thing? So throw it all out there and see what sticks? Is that what you're talking about? Or no? Have I got that completely wrong? Yeah, another way that we would think about it, in the Marines we talk about stacks of smoke straight up the middle. That's a blitzkrieg, you know, heading a market really hard and fast to establish a foothold, a beachhead, or to win customers. Have you used that strategy in building a business? And if so, how did it work for you? There's two sides to that, and maybe I'm getting the wrong end of the stick, but is for me, yes, very important, especially in the toy industry. So if you've got a good idea, that's maybe not something that you can protect. And maybe it's not proprietary, maybe it's not patentable. Then all you've got is to get it out there and be the first in the market, get your name associated with that product. So as soon as your competitors or me too, the people are trying to copy you, then of course, all the retailers have already got it. We're covered and they're covered with our product, right? And we are the original. So I'd say if that's the way I'm reading that question, right? So I would say, yes, the contra to that is sometimes you don't have to be the first in the market. You just have to be the best. And that's the McDonald's story is the classic of that, right? There are plenty of other burger places, but McDonald's did it differently and better. So you don't necessarily have to be the first. But I think in the toy industry, when there's a real novelty or something that's brand new, 
is the first one to market usually, usually rules the roost. So in that case, absolutely, yes. Yeah, well, a bit like your flyers story about you getting in there early, you being the distributor, and that's how you win a market. But speed of market, speed to market is the lesson here, isn't it? Like It's still a very important part when you see your niche execute relentlessly to dominate. Yeah, the expression I mean, like success loves speed or, you know, growth loves speed. You know, it, you, you need to be quick and you need to have that relentless push forward attitude. But the thing that I was alluding to before was this spray and pray, right? So I don't know if it was exactly what you're talking about, but a lot of people have this approach to even if you're job hunting, right? So people go, I'm going to send a CV to everybody, right? I'm going to say the same CV. I'm just going to change the name or whatever. I'm just going to send it to everybody. Or do I just be laser focused and target who I really want to work for and knock on their door and march straight in there and say, I want to work for you. That's who I want to, you know. And to me, that second approach is absolutely the one. That second approach has a lot more gravitas, a lot more weight behind it. And I don't know if that's what you're coming from, but for me, when you were saying about that blitz, there's two ways of going about your market and going about who you're going for. Any sales and in any industry, it's that, you know, who's your perfect customer and go after that perfect customer and tick them off one by one. So that's the other way I read that question, whether it's the way you meant it or not, but that's the other, other thing that's sprung to mind. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you about this. I, I've loved it. We've talked a lot about how you built the business. What a lot of people won't know is we connected like, what, over a decade ago when I was in a very different industry. And it's clearly that the network effect works because we were connected on LinkedIn and we reconnected and we've had a great conversation. Tell our listeners where they can find you, where they can learn more about Wicked. Share some details on where they can get hold of you. If anybody wants to reach out, obviously LinkedIn is fantastic, absolutely brilliant. So they're welcome to add me on LinkedIn. That's absolutely fine. Wickedvision.co.uk to have a look at our toys. It's always a good place to go. YouTube channel is also good. You can see all our nonsense sort of crazy videos that we've done over the years. And Sunnies, of course, sunnies.com, S-U-N-E-E-Z is our children's sunglasses brand. Thanks for allowing me to plug everything. So yeah, that's another place you can have a look at what we're doing. Brilliant. Well, I've really enjoyed sitting on the sidelines of watching you build not one, but multiple brands. And I'm so delighted that it's going so well for you. Um, I wish you all the best in the future, David. And I look forward to a day that you and I get out in the park, start chucking some of these boomerangs around. You can show me how it's done. Sounds great. Thanks so much, Phil. Really appreciate it. All right. Take care. Bye for now. What an amazing story. And what an amazing guy. He's learned so much in building Wicked over the last 20 years. And so many of those stories resonated with me with the sort of work that I'm doing with tech founders. I think what it's made me realize is that there's many more interesting stories out there about building businesses and that the skills that we use to win market share, to attract the right talent, to develop products, to innovate, it doesn't matter what you're selling. It doesn't matter what sector you're in, whether you're selling software or you're selling hardware or you're selling, in this instance, toys. Business practices remain the same. The discipline of business and the process that we have to go through. But what I also loved about the conversation with David is just the degree of humility that he has about realizing what he wasn't good at. The fact that he got both those lists of how to run a business and how not to run a business mixed up. And yes, it took an event maybe like COVID to make him realize this. But even after 17 years, he's not too long in the tooth to be able to change behaviors. And that's having an impact on the scale and growth of his business. So we've always believed it. We're never too old to learn. And I think that David's story is just a really fascinating one. 
I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, then please do rate us. Give us a five-star rating. But more importantly, share this episode with someone in your network. Share this episode and spread the knowledge. That way we can all learn and we can all grow. And if you're a founder yourself and you want to come and tell your story here on Behind Startup Lines, I would love to talk to you. Please just get in touch with me. Uh, You'll find me on LinkedIn. And until next time, have a great week. Thanks very much. Goodbye.